We've got a few more days to get this. <laughs> Good evening to you all. So, tonight I'd like to talk about Mudita. Maybe I should start with a little bit of a poll like I did with the last talk. How many of you have know what that is? Okay, so some do, some don't. I was uh, driving in Barrie a couple of weeks ago, and we've been having very severe weather there, very cold weather. And it's been in single digits, and at night it's been below zero with high wind chill, and you know, it kind of went on for day after day after day. And, and then we had a period of time where there was a thaw, and the snow went away, and the temperatures went up, and there were probably 50 or close to 50 for several days in a row. And as I was driving into town, I drove by this pasture uh, and I saw a couple of horses that I hadn't seen for a while out in the pasture. And one of them was laying on his back with his legs up in the air and kind of scooching around like that, <laughs> kind of using the, the, per, the permafrost as a back scratcher. And the other one was kind of gamboling around and kicking up his hind legs, you know, in close proximity. And I thought, boy, these guys think it's spring, you know? <laughs> They're really having a party out there. And I can remember feeling very happy just seeing their enjoyment on this pure animal level of happiness. This appreciation of the warmer weather and the way their bodies were responding to it. And mudita is about this kind of appreciation of the happiness and well-being of another. Human, animal, any sentient being at all. And to put this particular state of mind in context, we would start by saying how it fits in the Buddha's Eightfold Path. So this again is uh, a practice of wise intention. Wise intention. And it's part of the <coughs> Brahma Viharas. It's part of the suite of the four divine abidings. And we've practiced metta here, which is the first of these, loving kindness or loving friendliness. And then in her... Uh, talk last night, Marcia was talking about compassion, which is the second of these, this uh, capacity of mind to connect with the suffering of self or others with a mind of care and love and, and to wish it to uh, be eased in some sort of way. And you, if you remember the tone of the talk last night, uh, there's a kind of somberness almost to the discussion of compassion because of the way that it 
it refers to suffering and all the different ways that suffering can occur and indeed to the inevitability of suffering in this conditioned world where at the very least old age, sickness and death come to all of us, to all sentient beings. So even though the state of compassion in itself is a pleasant state, what it touches is unpleasant. It touches suffering, it touches difficulty. And after that trip through compassion and its focus on the the world of suffering, we have to remember that suffering isn't the only experience. Sometimes it may be hard to remember that, especially when we're in periods of time where the suffering is present, it's right up front, it seems to be all that we know, it seems to be unremitting and unbroken. But suffering isn't the only thing that we or other beings experience. There is also joy and happiness and the pleasure of the senses and of the mind. There are things like worldly success and good fortune and well-being. And while it's true that these things are conditioned as well, meaning that they're impermanent and thus incapable of providing lasting satisfaction to us, They're also a part, a very healthy and important part of life. This is part of the checkered nature of this reality that we've talked about before, this uh, alternating of shadow and light, shadow and light, pleasant and unpleasant. Well, this is the pleasant part. And after recognizing the depth of suffering in the conditioned world, the mind needs to turn towards the recognition of the upside of this condition process and to turn goodwill towards an acknowledgement of the fact that there is happiness, there is well-being, there is joy, there is success, there is good fortune. This is true just as much. People can be happy and good things can happen. And we can share in the happiness and well-being of others by turning our mind towards it in an approving, interested, rejoicing kind of way. And that's very much what this mudita is. So this word mudita is translated in a number of different ways. They all seem a little bit awkward to me, but Um, It's translated as empathetic joy, sympathetic happiness, uh, altruistic joy, appreciative joy. You get the picture. So it's about finding happiness in the joy and success of other, other beings. And in order to practice this particular mind state, this Brahma-vihara, we have to let the happiness and well-being of others register. We have to receive it in some sort of way and know it internally, know it directly, experientially. So in a sense, we endorse it. We get on board with it. We cheerlead it. So if we were to say, for instance, 
Metta is the wish for the happiness and well-being of others. Mudita is the mind's response when the wish worked. (laughs) They actually have some. (laughs) So then the mind gets on board and ratifies, recognizes and ratifies the fact there is happiness, enjoyment, pleasure, success, good fortune, all the rest of it, and kind of cheers it on, encourages it uh, mentally, approves of it, endorses it. There are many different examples of mudita that that can be given um, and I'm going to talk about a number of them as well as talk about a number of the number of examples of non-mudita. Um, one that I offered for the Mountain Hermitage website was uh, a little story that happened <laughs> about a year ago when uh, my mother, who is uh, 90, was watching... Um, a video of her great-granddaughter. This is her first great-grandchild. And a child that actually um, had some challenges. Uh, She was born significantly prematurely and there was a very difficult pregnancy and it was a little dicey there for quite a while. But at at the point of this video, uh, Jenny's maybe... What would she be? Um, maybe a year, and she's in one of these little <coughs> chairs that has wheels on it. It's got a little tray on the front, and it's got uh, the uh, these little flashing lights, and you can, you know, touch one of these little flashing lights, and a song will play. So uh, I'm watching. Uh, my sister, who was the one that downloaded this video, and my mother watching the video. So I'm like, there's the baby, there's the video, there's my mother, there's my sister, they're watching it. And so Jenny hits one of these these little lights, and on goes this uh, old Beatles song, Ticket to Ride, you know? <laughs> She's got a ticket to ride, and Jenny's going, She's really rocking, you know, rocking out, rocking out, rocking out to it. And my mother is watching this, and she starts to laugh, you know, and my sister laughs. And I start to laugh because I'm watching the whole chain reaction, you know, watching Jenny's joy and watching my mother's joy and my sister's joy, and then I'm feeling joy, and then I'm seeing the whole chain chain reaction, you know. And it's a classic experience of mudita, classic. Right? And often this is easiest for people who are kind of closest into our, our ring. Right? When we see them be happy, we can really find a lot of joy in it because we don't have uh, a sense of separation. But even with those of us who are kind of in the close-in ring, it's not necessarily always easy to feel mudita. There's a, there's a classic story in my family, you know, these family stories, they can linger on for quite a while, but I was the victim in this particular case. So the story is about how when I was about 
uh, six months or old or so. I was in my crib in my bedroom. And my mother had visitors at the house. And I have an older sister who's two years older than I am, who is actually the, the grandmother of Jenny. So, uh, but, so my mother was talking to her visitor about what a good baby I was. Not that I'm proud, but what a good baby I was. <laughs> you know, I didn't cry much, and I was very good-natured, seemingly. I didn't get sullen until I became a teenager. Uh, but So I was a good baby, and, and after a while, my mother hears this crying. So she comes into the bedroom, and there she finds my older sister, who was about two and a half at the time, who had apparently not fully appreciated the praise <laughs> and had gone into the bedroom and had my little tiny fingers in her mouth and was chewing them with her little tiny toddler teeth. Right? So a little bit of territorial guarding going on there, right? And you can see this kind of thing uh, very easily in the natural world too, can't you? Has anybody got a bird feeder? <laughs> right? You put out the seed for the birds and you say, okay, everybody be nice, you know, I'll refill it when it's empty. But they're not always nice, are they? Um, yeah, and then there's plenty of other, uh, plenty of other stories like that. You know, there's the classic Cain and Abel story that you remember from the Bible. There's the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament who screwed up and came back and then the father welcomed him back with open arms and the, the other brothers were like, what's with this? How come you're giving this guy, you know, stuff? He's... <laughs> He blew you off. We've been carrying the whole load and now you're back and you think we're going to be happy? Uh-uh. Classic examples of this. I can remember uh, a friend telling me uh, of be once being at a Thanksgiving gathering where uh, both sides of the family were gathered. She was at her sister's house. Both sides of the family were gathered. And at the Thanksgiving dinner, an announcement was made that there was a, a pregnancy. There was going to be a first child in the family. And the grandmothers who were there were all like, Oh, so wonderful, it's so wonderful. You know, they were up uh, all uh, full of joy and happiness and rejoicing and all the rest of it. And my friend said that, uh, when she stood there, she, she felt this tremendous wave of jealousy just course through her body. And uh, the feeling arise, there's nothing I will ever do that will get that kind of approval. Right? Not my relationship, not getting the Nobel Prize, <laughs> nothing <laughs> is ever going to get the grandmas going, oh, in that same kind of way. Eh? So we compare and we contrast. You know, of course, that's not, not all of it either. Um, I was just talking about uh, the grandniece, uh, Jenny, who now has a, a younger sister, Gracie. 
And, you know, there's a recent story of them being at the pediatrician's. Sorry, Lisa, don't listen. That's too distressing. (laughs) Being at the pediatrician's because the baby had an earache. And uh, so the baby had an earache and she was being examined, which, of course, you know, hurts when you kind of poke around when a sore ear, ear. So she was crying and getting agitated. And the older girl, Gracie, uh, went over and gave the little the pediatrician a little shove and said, "Don't hurt baby Gracie, right? <laughs> Don't hurt Gracie. Don't hurt Gracie." And the pediatrician says, "Said something like, oh, they're usually a little older when they start to notice that kind of thing and feel protective.' So she was a little premature in that way too. But you know, it kind of it points to to the turf sense that we have as human beings. We have a little bit of turf sense, ownership, compare and contrast. Mind is frequently there. So, for instance, I have a I have a friend whose uh, relationship with her partner is such that every once in a while, uh, she'll just go up to her and say, "Mine." <laughs> mine <laughs> right and there's probably a lot of uh, Valentine's Day cards that are floating around right now that have some version of that right be mine meaning don't be anybody else's you know put a put a little microchip on your ear or something you know to show who who the ownership belongs to And I'm mentioning all these things because this mudita is not necessarily all that easy all the time. And we'll explore a little bit more some of the whys of that. But let me ask the group, is anybody here ever practiced mudita? Okay. Significant? Well, you don't count. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you're bending the curve there. <laughs> so this is interesting because it's it's the third of the Brahma Viharas and probably the least practiced, the least practiced. And the teaching or the understanding is that it's the most difficult to practice. It tends to be the most difficult to, to practice, which which is a little bit surprising when you consider. It's all about happiness and getting on board with happiness uh, and endorsing happiness. But, as we see, we have some, some challenges. When mudita actually is present, it's happy and joyful and uplifted expansive, connected, generous, rejoicing. There's a feeling like there is enough. And there's an internal and external happiness very often and a recognition and an appreciation of the upside of things. So the Dalai Lama once said, six billion people, six billion chances for happiness. And when he said it, what he was talking about was not only our individual capacity for happiness, but our capacity to have basically 
uh, resonant happiness because others are happy. You know, there is the potential to actually be happy about the happiness of every single being that exists. Let me give you some other examples of mudita and what that actually is like. I experience a lot of mudita when I teach. When I have the chance to actually offer the, the Dhamma to people, to see people's minds start to open, to see them start to grab hold of the practice, to start to understand what it's about, start to put things together, have their minds start to open and, and balance and develop. I feel a lot of mudita in that process. I do. Uh, but here's some other examples that are, um, you can probably relate to. Seeing your son or daughter graduate from college. Right? You see them walking there with their cap and gown, getting handed the baton. <laughs> Yeah. And then they go home, go off with their friends and leave you with the student loan bills. But you're happy, right? You're happy to see them happy that they're, they're through it. They've succeeded. Another kind of uh, example might be um, watching somebody enjoy a meal that you prepared. You have somebody over to the house. You make them a meal. You think that they'll enjoy. You pull it together, you serve it to them. They sit down and they, they start eating. And Oh, this is really good. This makes me feel... Oh, you remember that I like this, right? This is... Oh, you've got such a good, me- good memory that... Huh? That you thought of me and you remembered this. It makes you feel good. Hearing a friend get a job that they really needed. Right? Somebody that's been out of work for a while and things have been hard, you've been kind of worried about them, and then you, you find out that that job that they applied for, they got. You're like, yes! Yes! All right! Seeing someone uh, respected in the community finally get recognized. Like maybe somebody who's done a lot of volunteer work, somebody who's been a pillar at a school, or in uh, another community, get recognized for what they've done. You see, oh, they're seen. They're finally being seen. I'm so glad. They really deserve it. It's been a long time coming. I actually had the uh, a pretty strong experience of Mudita at Mandela's uh, funeral. Not that I was <laughs> glad that he passed away, but just the combination of seeing like the national pride... Um, you know, people's rejoicing in his life that was well spent, the international recognition that he got for the kind of uh, heroic spiritual and uh, political leadership he provided. That made me feel uh, happy. Having somebody's uh, health issue finally resolve, somebody that you know who's been ill, and they finally find something that works and they start to recover, they get better. Oh, yeah, so glad. 
watching your niece score a goal in a big soccer game. Go, 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 yeah. Can even be simple things, very simple things. Sometimes when I, I feed my dog his evening meal, if it's especially well-received, you can tell. <laughs> because he gets kind of, uh, you know, start stretching and kind of like, and then I'll look for the ball, you know, I'll get, look for the ball and I'll want you to play ball a little bit with him. And I'll, I'll just look at him and I'll say, was it tasty, Ray? Was it very tasty? You know, no kind of, uh, tasty, tasty, right? So these are all examples of mudita. So now check into your, your body uh, sense and, your, and how your mind feels right now at the resonance of this, right? And you can see it's, it's a really uplifting kind of thing. I've, I've presented to you all of these, uh, these stories, these images, these um, um, words, and from that you've caught the joy represented in the story. So you've caught the mudita. So you see it can be quite contagious. And that's a good thing. Because the mudita mind is really the kind of you go girl mind. You go. Yeah. Okay. Enjoy that. You enjoy that. That is good. And some of the things that support mudita, of course, is metta because this is rooted in goodwill. Gratitude and, and generosity, very important. A, a mind that's grateful, you're, you're speaking of your own mind, a mind that's grateful is a mind that recognizes that it has many assets, that it has been given many things, that it has many uh, assets. So it doesn't feel impoverished doesn't feel impoverished, so it's less likely to go in the direction of resentment or comparison when it becomes aware of somebody else's happiness. And the way that generosity figures in with this is a mind that's been practicing generosity easily lets go of things, isn't so concerned with grasping and holding on and what it's going to get. So it's not miserly, it's not uh, operating in a hoarding kind of mode. And then, of course, rapture and delight supports mudita. That felt sense that you all just experienced when I was telling those stories. That uplifting kind of quality that's very pleasant. That is part of a loop that can encourage you to incline the mind towards mudita because you experience the pleasantness of the state. So let's talk about the near and far enemies of mudita. So we said before that it's the most difficult of the Brahma-viharas to practice and is probably way under-practiced. So if you were going to say what the near enemy of mudita is, hmm, 
what would that be? Make a guess at that. What do you think would be close? Jealousy. That's the far, one of the far enemies. But it, the near enemy is a kind of exuberance that loses mindfulness. It kind of spins out too much. So an example of, a couple of examples of what this would be. So say you have a favorite basketball team and you're at the game where they win the championship and you're there with a lot of other rabid <laughs> basketball fans and the team is so excited and the crowd is so excited that they won the basketball game that after the basketball game they can't contain themselves and then they go out on the street and kind of overturn cars and you know break windows and that kind of thing right it's like it, it's gone from being it's like it, one toke over the line okay <laughs> maybe more than one toke maybe several tokes over the line but they've, they've gone too far you've gone way too far it's no longer wholesome Another example of this might be uh, going to a wedding and having a really good time. So, you know, there's a lot of empathetic joy, there's a lot of happiness, there's a lot of music, there's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of, a lot of drinking. You know, before the night is over, you've been swinging on the chandelier, and when you wake up in the morning, it's in the bathtub. Okay, so another example of the near enemy. So the far enemy are some of the things that you might guess, which are things like jealousy and envy and the craving they stem from. So somebody's getting something or has something and that recognition stirs up comparison and ill will. So another um, thing that can happen is the arising of avarice or the direct arising of a state of greed of wanting to get something and hoard it and make sure nobody else can get it. And the arising of, of judgment as well. So, for instance, sometimes we have judgments about what make pe people happy. Now, with empathetic joy, with the practice of empathetic joy, it theoretically shouldn't matter to us what makes them happy as long as it's not unwholesome, as long as it's not unskillful. <clears throat> so, I've noticed for myself, sometimes I'll... I'll I don't know, hear a story or see something like some guy that devoted, you know, five years of his life to carving, you know, miniature trains and having a, you know, a, to scale village that, you know, covers five states or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or this this has been like this person's like total avocation for incredibly long periods of time, you know, down in the basement sometime. I mean, probably hasn't talked to his wife and children for five years of the project, but and I'll notice like my mind will just go like, Why? 
why why would you why would you do that why would you put that much energy and focus into that okay so that that's an example of you know judgment arising in the mind i mean there's nothing intrinsically wrong with this right it's a lot better than some some things that you could you know obsess about for five years but to me it doesn't make sense and a judgment arises in my mind and so when that's present I don't have the capacity for empathetic joy. That's not there. So there's that kind of example. Judgment. And the other things... Jealousy, envy, avarice. And... These come up basically because the realization that somebody else has something can cause us to to immediately check to see what we have in comparison to that. She's got it. I don't have it. And, you know, this is very, very, a very common thing. This is a very common human thing. And so I think one of the important things in working with this, um, these uh, hindrances, and they are hindrances, that that arise, is to not overreact to their presence. I say to not overreact to the presence of jealousy, envy, avarice, and all the rest of this. And why do I say that? Because if you overreact to them, then the mind moves into a position of condemnation of what it's experiencing. Right? It turns on itself like, oh, I'm so bad. It's like, oh, my sister just got engaged, and I, you know, I'm here. I'm older than two years older than her, and I don't have anybody. And oh God, I'm so disgusting. I'm jealous at my own sister. Right? I mean, isn't this how how the mind goes, right? Or, oh, he got invited to teach at, you know, Spirit Rock, and I didn't, I can't get in there no matter what, you know? It's like, I don't know what's so special about him. (laughs) You know, his Dharma talks aren't that great, you know? (laughs) Yeah, right? So, you know, our minds do this. So then, you know, the mind could turn around and say, oh my God, I'm a Dharma teacher. And I'm like (laughs) jealous of this guy getting to go to Spirit Rock. He gets invited more than I do. I'm such a terrible person. You know, I should just give up the seat completely because I'm having this. You know, so we can really overreact to this, right? So it adds a whole level of hindrance on top of the existing hindrance, right? It's compounding the hindrance. It's another form. It's a form of rejection uh, and turning uh, against ourselves, a form of aversion towards ourselves and and towards the state that we've just experienced. And one of the reasons that I think it's really important to call for mercy when these particular states arise is because there's a natural biological underpinning for a lot of these things, right? Right? I mean, you just look at the bird feeder and you can tell, right? They're not saying, I don't think that bird deserves that seed, right? It's all like hunger response, hunger response. And I think 
a lot of this is true for us as well. I mean, we're mammals. <laughs> you see uh, a cat in your house, if it hasn't been altered beyond repair, you know, it goes around and sprays. You know, what is that? It's just an instinctive behavior. And we as human beings, we have this tendency too. You know, we do it in a little more polite ways, like uh, putting a t-shirt on somebody that says uh, uh, baby Cynthia's daddy or something. <laughs> but we do it the same. We do it the same way and for the same kind of reasons. So this capacity that we have, this uh, to have comparison arise strongly in the mind, is known in, in Buddhist lingo as conceit. So the mind is always, until you're fully enlightened, so you can probably relax about <laughs> erasing this anytime soon. So until you're fully enlightened, the mind has a, ha, will compare itself to others as better than, the same as, or worse than. It just kind of it does it all the time. Now you've probably noticed this, you know, this, this kind of comparing can come up on retreat. Have you noticed that? You know, kind of like, you're not supposed to be making eye contact. But, you know, you still have kind of checked each other out to a certain extent, right? Like, hmm, she seems really quiet over there. Oh, she seems like she's probably getting it. She's probably a good yogi, you know? Or, oh, restless. Oh, I'm better than that. <laughs> I'm not restless right now. <laughs> I was restless this morning, and I may be re restless this afternoon, but right now I'm doing okay. I'm feeling the meta. I'm feeling the meta. I'm not restless, but she's restless. I kind of lose that meta thread there for a while. So these comparisons do happen. You know, the, uh, the far enemies can also come up when there's a dislike of the, the person, the particular person. So, um, if there's unpleasant Vedana in relationship to a person, meaning if, if it's a, a person where you, you just see them or you know them, and the, the visceral reaction is unpleasant to them, um, there's often a, a lack of goodwill to people for whom we have that kind of reaction. So in that case, there's meta-issues, M-E-T-T-A issues present. Basically, we don't really want them to be happy, let alone for their happiness to continue. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so maybe we don't actively wish them harm or want them to suffer. So it, it doesn't go that far, but, you know, but being happy is a, oh, is a different thing. <laughs> you know, like, so we're... We're more in like a don't ask, don't tell thing, like trying to hold from falling into complete aversion in relationship to it. You know, another thing that can really operate is what you might call the leveling impulse. Um, I, I heard one of the most classic examples of this at, uh, on watching an Oprah show one day where she was talking about how when she was younger she was in a relationship with, with a guy and she was really attached to them 
attached to him, like not in a good kind of way, but really attached to him. And uh, he was leaving her, and he was driving away, and at the point he was, he was leaving her and driving away, she ran out and like threw herself on the hood, asking him not to stay, not to stay, not to stay. And he looked at her and he said, Baby, the trouble with you is you think you're special and you're not. Right? Leveling. Undercutting, undercutting. I can remember, of course, <laughs> he probably has a little bit different view now. <laughs> How many billions does does Oprah have? Um, I can remember once I was um, getting ready to go on retreat, and I was go- going to be going on a, a year-long retreat. And I met somebody around town as I was, you know, bustling around trying to get things ready. And the person said to me, "Oh, how you doing? What's going on?" Da da da. And I said, "Well, I'm. I got running around. I got a lot of stuff to do. I'm getting re- ready to go on retreat for a year." And the person looked at me and said, there isn't enough natural light in the kitchen at the place I was going to. And that was it. <laughs> so it was even worse because I was the project manager for this place that I was going to. I, so I built it. No, there isn't enough natural light in the kitchen. I was like, oh. <laughs> the mudita, it wasn't flowing. <laughs> right? So, you know, envy, of course, part of envy is the zero-sum reaction thinking. Right? If they have it, I can't have it. Or if they have it, I can't have anything like it. Or they've got it, and that means it's not available to me. And then when that's strong, you know, it's hard to see the happiness or well-being or success of others. And when we do see it, it can be very unpleasant, right? So there's very unpleasant Vedna with the recognition. So, you know, that last story that I told you about, there isn't enough natural light in the kitchen. I'm, I'm guessing that that was probably an extremely strong uh, internal reaction of that particular kind. And then with avarice uh, or stinginess, it's kind of like guarding the dish, you know? holding on to the the food stash or something. You don't want anybody to get anything that the self doesn't have because then maybe if they get it, there won't be enough, right? So those are the challenges. And I think we can all acknowledge these are fairly frequently arising states, right? Maybe not arising particularly strong, but they definitely do arise. Right? Why did this person get this room instead of of me? You know, why did this person get this promotion in, instead of me? Um, why does this person have money and I don't have money? Why does this person have health? You know, she's the same age as me, but, you know, I don't have health. It comes out of our suffering, basically comes out of our suffering, these reactions. And it also comes out of a lot of assumptions that we make about what people's lives are actually like. 
You know, we see something, someone that seems to have it together, or seems to have it all, or does definitely have something more than we have in, in a certain kind of way, and we forget that they suffer too. We think, oh, you know, that person's got it all, and I don't. But they don't have it all because nobody has it all. I was watching television uh, recently. There was a, a two-part um, interview show that interviewed two of the young heirs of the Duke family fortune. Do you know who the Duke family is? They're, they're a big tobacco family. They, uh, Duke University in North Carolina, they, their, their money supported that. So you know, you're talking about a family fortune of billions of dollars. And these two uh, young people were being interviewed about what their experience actually was um, growing up with their father, who was apparently a very serious addict. And because he had all of this money, nobody would say no to him. Nobody would say no to him, and there are always plenty of people around to facilitate him getting anything that he wanted. And the kids were kind of shuffled off into the care of a series of caretakers who uh, in many cases were indifferent or abusive or addicts themselves. And they were had a horrible, horrible life and, and upbringing, very traumatic. Like they've had to be, like once their father died, their natural mother could finally reclaim custody of them. And it had been one of those cases where the the, there was parental alienation where, you know, the mother had basically been uh, shut out completely due to the father's uh, money and ability to lawyer up. And she hadn't had access to the children for years and years. And they had been told that she had abandoned them and didn't care about them and didn't love them. And, you know, when she finally was able to gain access to them, they were a mess, a complete mess. They had to go into, like, residential treatment for months and they'll be dealing with it for the rest of their lives you know you think about people who have obvious good fortune in other kinds of ways you know you you look at some at uh, somebody like well we'll take oprah because we were talking about her <laughs> previously her show you know somebody who's got uh, a lot of power a lot of wealth a lot of influence, which she generally seems to use in very wholesome and positive ways. But can you imagine how uh, difficult and distorting in a certain kind of way it would be to have that kind of position? I, I know have some friends who have uh, some wealth, not a lot of wealth, but have, you know, some money. And one of the things that... Um, one of them said to me is that they always had uh, kind of an unease and a suspicion sometimes when people approached them in friendship because they were never really sure whether people want, wanted to be their friends or whether people were like coming in there and you know trying to find a way to get something out of it. Right? So the, these situations that, that we envy have a lot of fantasy projection on our part. 
uh, involved often. It's not the kind of unalloyed uh, good that we might imagine. The Buddha even said uh, about one particular wealthy man who was very wealthy and who uh, was very stingy with his, with his wealth, was actually kind of a hoarder, that the man, that that wasn't good karma for him to be born with that kind of wealth, but an inability to share it with anybody, and that tendency, you know, just to want to conserve it, and the fear that somebody would come in and take it and get it. So even though we may feel all these emotions come up on occasion when we practice mudita, we can practice with them in the same way that we practice with any other kind of hindrance when it's present. So uh, the basic method of doing this, of course, is the visualization of the, the being and the recitation of the mudita phrases, which are something like, uh, may your joy and happiness continue, or may your well-being and its causes continue. May your good fortune continue and increase. So let me say a little uh, something now about... moral clarity and the practice of mudita too because I think it's important to be said. You know, we all know that um, fortune and good fortune can come to people in a lot of different ways. And sometimes the way that fortune or good fortune can come to people is not Siwa. So this wishing for someone's happiness and well-being to increase always has to be understood within the context of the Eightfold Path as a whole. So I'm mentioning it this because you know sometimes what's making somebody happy is something that has been extracted from somebody else, right? Has come to them uh, in ways that have caused harm to themselves or others. So that would clearly not be uh, an instance where you would be offering mudita or practicing mudita. So some of the examples of that would be May you continue to evade child support. <laughs> right? This is not mudita. Right? This is not a wholesome action or even a, a morally neutral action on the person's, person's behalf. So that would not be the way we would be holding it. And I want to expand this discussion just a little bit. Um... Was it Karl Marx that said, uh, religion is the opiate of the people? See the one that said it? Does that sound right? Okay. 
So this is an interesting point. So we practice these um, trainings to increase these wholesome factors of mind, metta, compassion, mudita, and equanimity. So, and the ultimate goal of these is to be able to hold these skillful attitudes of mind towards any being without exception. Towards any being without exception. So, you know, we can practice holding these uh, attitudes of goodwill towards the full range of people and say, in the case of uh, Mudita, even towards, like, people who are on the the moral, morally, yeah, you know what I'm saying, end of the spectrum, right? A lot of unwholesome deeds, a lot of unwholesome attitudes, a lot of unwholesome actions, a lot of unwholesome um, values. But I think it's important to realize when we're doing these practices, we're not jettisoning discernment or clear comprehension. We're not letting go of wisdom, right? So we're not becoming blind to or indifferent to the consequences, for instance, of large-scale uh, avarice in the body politic and in the culture at large, right? It can't mean that, that we're just a-okay with everybody doing everything, and we don't see the unskillfulness of some things, and we don't work in a way that's skillful to meet it. And I'm making this point because of the nature of our particular culture. Now, the Buddhist culture was a culture that's sometimes described as a gift culture. A gift culture. And you can see the carry-through uh, line with what we're doing here. So, for instance, the reliance on uh, dana for the support of the, the teachers and the people who support this retreat is an example of that. The way the teachings have been carried to the extent possible without there being any charge associated with it. And if you look back to the time of the Buddha, generosity was a very, very major Value And it was a, a, a necessary element for the Buddha Dharma even to be started, let alone to be carried. So you had the Buddha and later his community of monks and nuns. And these people were renunciates, which meant that they owned, they had like a begging bowl, they had a robe. And that was it. <laughs> that was pretty much it. That's, that's what they owned. And they were completely reliant, completely dependent on the lay people of the time for everything. So a place to stay, medicine, even their robes and their food. So they did and they were prohibited from even storing storing food overnight. So on a daily basis, basically, and you still see this in some some South Asian cultures, the monks would come out from wherever they were staying and they would walk around the village with their bowl and people from the village as part of their practice of generosity would put food in their bowl to sustain them so that they could practice 
the monks could practice and then later teach uh, the lay people and support them in that kind of way. So if you read the suttas, there's all, all of this talking about, um, you know, going out for alms and uh, people coming to the Buddha and inviting him and the monks to come to, you know, their home and feeding them and, you know, this person coming and making this offering and this person coming and making this offering, this person coming and making this offering. So that's the kind of culture they were, a gift-giving culture. That's, that's how they did it. And the Buddha himself had no problem with wealth. So he, often, he would often uh, talk with approval of what he, about what he called uh, righteous wealth righteously gained. That's got two provisos in it, right? Righteous wealth, righteously gained. You know, and that was seen to be a, a, a beneficial thing, a good thing. You know, a sign of good karma. And he would enjoin lay people who had the good fortune to be a part of that group, to be generous in sharing what they had, that that was, that was part, of the, part of the teachings. And he would encourage them basically not to be stingy with their families, not to be stingy with their workers, to, to spread it around, to, put, <laughs> to circulate it, to circulate it, to use it in wholesome and beneficial ways in the community. And often when the Buddha Dharma is, is taught, even now, the way that it's taught is the first thing that's taught to the lay people coming to the Dharma is generosity. And the idea is, if you don't practice generosity, the mind is stuck, the mind, mind is attached, it's not really, you know, if it's not even willing to like open up a little bit to offer something, it's, it's closed, it's stuck. You know, the other kinds of renunciation that the path calls for in its later development isn't going to be possible unless there's at least something something cracked open a little bit at the beginning. And, you know, you can see why generosity was necessary at the beginning, because if the lay community didn't offer sustenance to the monks, they would have to leave or starve. Right? So it was a sign of disinterest if there was no support forthcoming. So it was generosity first, then it was sila, the teachings of morality, including the teachings of uh, not taking what isn't given, i.e. stealing or, you know, swindling, uh, you know, making a living by doing things that cause harm, uh, that kind of stuff. And then next would be t- taught bhavana or mental development or meditation. That would be taught later. Because the thinking was, without those first two elements in place, without a basic openness, open-handedness of attitude and basic morality, the, your chances of being able to meditate are zero. Right? The mind just isn't doesn't have the basic um, the basic platform from which to to undertake the the bhavana uh, trainings. Now, our culture, I'm mentioning all of this because I want to talk a little bit about our culture and then wind this back into a conversation of, uh, about mudita, certain aspect of mudita, which our economy, 
is a compete, acquire, markup, and sell economy. Right? That's what we do. We compete for resources or for jobs or, you know, for whatever it is. You know, we compete. Then we get something, whether that's goods or, you know, professional function or whatever it is. Then we mark it up, right? add something on top to our cost, and then we sell it. So this is a very different kind of value system. And I'm mentioning this because just as metta and compassion have wisdom aspects to it, like remember when I gave my metta talk, one of the things that I said was, you know, don't misunderstand this thing about metta because metta doesn't mean that, uh, you know, you can have unconditional love for uh, all beings, but there are no, there's no such thing as unconditional relationships. Right? That boundaries, healthy boundaries, are part of the big picture of being able to sustain metta in a way that's skillful. This is, this is true, and this is true of compassion as well, right? There's a thing called uh, uh, idiot compassion, or the kind of compassion where it's just like, you know, the person is drained, or you, you become codependent with somebody, and, you know, you're picking up after them, and, you know, it's... You're saying it's because you, you care about their suffering and stuff, but there's no wisdom in it, right? So there can be a version of mudita that's kind of like this, uh, where there's, there isn't wisdom. There's something missing. <laughs> there's a linchpin missing. And I think that has to do with realizing that there can be skillfully gained wealth and skillfully used wealth and good fortune and unskillfully used and gained, right? I was really struck recently because there was a article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, I don't know if anybody else saw this, where someone who is, you know, probably at the 0.1% of the 1% was talking about how with, you know, all this talk now about um, the growing gap between the rich and poor and how wealth is being uh, distributed and redistributed, he really felt that it was all coming from envy and jealousy. Um, and, you know, it was just all, it was resentment and, and the reference he made it was you know and it's it's all it it's like crystal knock which is right so he was saying you know some some and to, maybe some of the younger people don't know what that is but it was kind of one of the nazi kickoff terror nights uh at the beginning of the the process of the holocaust really getting on a roll where a lot of street terrorism was done and the beginning of the roundups and things so, there's something really wrong with that thinking. Okay? So, basically what I see in that is someone who is protecting their avarice by, prote by cr criticizing the presumed jealousy and resentment and envy 
of the people who are saying, hey, this bread is getting to be way too big in our culture and in the world. This is an unhealthy dynamic. So that's what not what mudita is, right? Mudita maintains the capacity for discernment even though it doesn't discriminate against persons, right? So even with this this particular individual that that I'm talking about, um, it's still possible to practice mudita, right? So the way you would do practice mudita with him, and he would probably be in the difficult person category, at least he would be for me, uh, but the way that you would practice with this particular person would be you wouldn't focus on that part of his good fortune, right? So you, you might find something else about what's happy for him or uh, what's a manifestation of his well-being and happiness. And you would offer mudita to that, right? Maybe it's a happy marriage or maybe it's, you know, good health or, you know, something that is uh, morally neutral or uh, doesn't violate uh, sila in, uh, right? So you see the, pr- the principle with that. So this carries through the practice of, of mudita all the way through. This, this is a through line as well. You know, some, you can make this kind of discernment and uh, in, in making that kind of discernment, you're upholding the wisdom piece of um, this particular kind of practice. So is that is that clear what I'm saying? So we don't want to push anybody out. We don't want to push anybody out. It's really important. This is part of our... Um, development as a human being to be able to carry this capacity uh, for goodwill all the way out, out to the farther limits and include everybody. And it's necessary that we do that. Because if we can't find some level of connection with, some level of okayness with, some level of um, resonance with everybody on this basic you're a human, you can feel pain, you can feel suffering, just like the, the rest of us. We're all essentially similar on some foundational level. If we can't find that, then we can't find the solutions to things uh, that we really need to find solutions to because we, we polarize completely. Right? So we have to really reject the polarization and the language of polarization, right? But we can still make very strong critiques and uh, tell the truth. Tell the truth without making enemies. And this is the the wisdom practice, the practice of uh, a discernment, and the the practice of metta at a, a deep and advanced level. We kind of have to slalom around a few things and find the way, find the thread, find the through line where there can be communication, there can be inclusion, and when it's necessary, there can be uh, confrontation, I guess is the word, uh, way I would put it. 
So, you know, sometimes we can't have just a, a go-along mind. Sometimes more is required. And the earth is really asking that of us now. So don't be so worried about your jealousy. <laughs> we all have it. Our envy, our avarice, our judgment, all the rest of it. When I was at a retreat recently, one of my fellow teachers who has, a, has struggles with insomnia asked me how I slept. And I said, good. And she said, I hate you. <laughs> and I said, I hope you just hate me a little. I hope it's a little hate. You know? And we, did, we both laughed. I hope it's a little hate. So may we all find the way to practice mudita with wisdom and care. And enjoy the vicarious joy to be had on this planet of six billion humans and many, many, many animal friends. Let's do the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.